Well, over the past uh, few years, probably, I've been in, as I've been in ministry, have been giving a lot of thought to what are some of the cultural shifts that are taking place in our world that will make it an increasingly challenging environment for us as Christians to be able to share God's word with our neighbours, with the community, with the people that we live amongst. And there are a number of things that we've flagged in that space, a number of challenges that I think we will uh, continue to need to wrestle with. But you know, as I've thought about it, I reckon that one of the greatest challenges for us, one of the greatest impediments for us, if we could even use that language, to sharing Jesus with our neighbours is not so much the things that are outside of us, but the things that are inside of us. It's our own anxiety about that. It's our own fear of what might take place if we stepped out. It's our own uncertainty of the reception that we might receive. We are well acquainted with Matthew chapter 28, the commission that Jesus gave his disciples to go out into all of the world and make disciples. And yet we sometimes struggle to find the courage to do that. And it's interesting as we look at the chapters that we read through a few moments ago that one of the themes that runs through these chapters is the courage that Paul had to speak in the manner that he did in the context that he found himself in. And as we go through these chapters, this is one of the threads that I'd like to follow today. Chapters 25 and 26 uh, are actually really best read in conjunction with chapter 24. And you'll be glad that we did chapter 24 last week, otherwise we might have had to read three chapters instead of just two chapters. But chapter 24, Paul was on trial before Felix, the Roman governor. I need to just clear up something I said last week at the very end of my sermon, that after the hearing there with Felix, uh, Felix said that he'd come back to Paul when it was convenient. So far as we know, he didn't actually. The passage says Felix sent for Paul many times. Uh, what I really should have said was, as far as we know, Felix never went back after he, uh, he uh, ceased his governorship. But S Felix did cease his governorship, and because he wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, a theme that we see commonly in the Romans, uh, in terms of their governance, he left Paul in prison, which is where Paul was when Festus Porcius took over. Now, you remember last week I talked about Felix. He was not a good guy. Felix was bad news. Festus, by contrast, was not a bad governor. The Jewish historian Josephus records uh, that he actually was a pretty decent sort of a guy. He inherited a context, uh, the Judean context, that was an area racked by political strife. It was overrun by bandits. There were bandits known as Sicarii, named after the little short swords that they carried, who typically would go and attack a village, an isolated village. They would plunder it for its possessions. They would murder and rape and, and so forth. Uh, and under Festus, during his reign, although he only reigned for two years, he was largely able to reign that in. Unfortunately, his reign was too short to eradicate it completely, and so beyond him, that sort of behaviour continued. And as I said a moment ago, as was typical of the Roman governors, they tried to ingratiate's probably not the right word. They tried to get on side with their hosts, in this case the Jews, endear himself, that might be a better word, with the host population. And if you have a look there in Acts chapter 25 verse 2, uh, he wanted to do that with the Jewish leaders. Now these guys, as you see from that reading, they've got long memories 
and they are determined to see the end of Paul and appeared before Festus pretty much as soon as he came into power, seeking that they might uh, be done with this Paul. In fact, they had a plan. And their plan was that they'd get Paul transferred to Jerusalem. Festus, who was new and probably a little bit um, naive in this space, would comply with their plan, they hoped. And they were going to assassinate him on the way. That's pretty serious, isn't it? They were desperately keen to see the end of this fellow. But uh, Festus thwarted their plans, as we see from this passage, by saying, well, no, why don't you come down to Caesarea with me? and we'll have a hearing down there. But this is where Festus started to run into trouble because Festus was not overly well acquainted with Judaism and its laws and its regulations. And in fact, the Romans, generally speaking, were not all that interested in dealing with religious matters. They were concerned about civil matters. In other words, they wanted to make sure the government stuff ran ran well, the political stuff worked. They were happy generally just to leave the people to sort out their religious stuff. And Festus was a little bit confounded because what he discovered was that the accusations being brought by the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish leaders, were actually religious issues, not civil issues. And so Festus, as we see in the text, wanting to stay in the good books with the Jews, asked whether Paul would be happy to be transferred to Jerusalem. Let's go and have the hearing there. Now, it seems a reasonable request, except Paul knew that if that took place, Festus would convene a court uh, up in Jerusalem that would be largely made up of the very people who were accusing him. And so we see here in the text that he appeals to Caesar, which as a Roman citizen he could do. There's some people who through the years have said and looked at the text even, uh, you know, Paul made a mistake in doing that. I'm not sure that you could say that. I don't think Paul had any choice. He realised that if he conceded to uh, Festus' request, he would have ended up in Jerusalem uh, before a court who was totally unsympathetic, unsympathetic to his case. And uh, again, because Festus uh, wanted to curry favour with the Jews, a lot like his predecessor, he allowed expediency to overrule justice. He did what was convenient instead of what was right. And we probably shouldn't be too hard on Festus in that space because I suspect that we've all been there before, haven't we? I was desperately trying to think of an example of when I've done something that uh, reflected expediency and not what was right. And there's so many examples, I didn't know which one to choose and I didn't think I should tell you anyway. (laughs) But the reality is there's something we've all been uh, faced with, isn't it? Just get it done kind of thing, you know, and then move on. Might not be the right thing, but it might be to our advantage just to sort it. And Festus acted in that way. He, he made a decision that he hoped would benefit his case, but it was not the right and honourable decision to make. But then, uh, just as we follow this text, Festus had a problem because if he sent Paul to Caesar, he needed to have a jolly good reason why he'd sent Paul to Caesar. Because if Paul rocked up to Caesar without a good reason, Festus would be made to look like a right wally. This happened, it happened to me years ago. Um, when I was at school, we had a, a school that had a system of detentions. Did your school have detentions? 
Yeah, I was determined to get through my school years without getting a detention. Because if you got a detention, you'd get a one-hour detention on Friday after school. I didn't want to have to hang around at school for an hour after school on Friday and get a signed note from my parents saying that I got a detention. If you were really bad, you'd get a two-hour detention on Saturday. And if you're a total recidivist, you'd get a three-hour detention on Saturday. You get two of those in a row, you get suspended. You get suspended twice, you're out of the school. So here I was. I wanted to get through school without getting a detention. But one day, rather unfortunately, I was sitting in the back row uh, of the class with a PE teacher whose name was Mr Williams. And the class was messing around a bit. The back row, there were a few characters in the back row. That's a good way to describe them. And Mr Williams lost his banana and he just went, right, everyone in the back row, you've got a PE detention. Now, PE detention wasn't quite as serious as a school detention. You didn't have to take a note home to your parents, but it was still a detention. So I was deeply disappointed. That afternoon, because PE detentions were served that same day, I rocked up to the PE office in my best uh, you know, a posture of contrition, you know, humility. And one of the other PE teachers, Mr Williams was not there, looked at me and said, what are you here for? So I've got a PE detention. Now they would put it in a book so that they knew who was going to turn up for a PE detention. And so the teacher was kind of ruffling his through the book, you know, turning the pages back and forwards. What was your name again? Hodgins? Yes, sir. Uh, you got a PE detention? Yes, sir. When did you get it? Fourth period this morning, sir. Um, I could tell there wasn't in the book. And I was sitting there thinking, how stupid am I? <laughs> you know, if I hadn't turned up, I would never have had a detention, my record would be clean. And then after shuffling through the book for a few minutes, the teacher said, oh, look, I'll tell you what you do. Uh, just get changed, run around the block, and that'll do. Man, I thought that is so easy. I loved running around the block. It was a mile, exactly a mile. I could do it in under 10 minutes. I could be done and dusted with this detention in 10 minutes. My point, though, is this. If, uh, if Paul had been sent to Caesar without his notice of detention, so to speak, from Festus, Caesar would have looked at Paul and said, what are you doing here? And so Festus actually needed to have a really good reason for Paul to, uh, to be sent to Rome. And rather fortunately for Festus, it just so happened that King Agrippa, the last in the line of Caesars, was chosen, had chosen to make his way to Caesarea to kind of do a courtesy call on the new Festus and so King Agrippa was in the vicinity. Now a little bit of background on King Agrippa. King Agrippa, uh, as I say, was the last of the Caesars. He was kind of connected, he knew the Jews, he understood the Jewish uh, story, the background. Uh, and Bernice uh, was a Jewess. Some really strange stuff going on in this space. It doesn't tell us this in the text, but uh, apparently um, King Agrippa was not married to Bernice, they were actually brother and sister. But it was pretty commonly suspected in Roman circles that there was some funny business going on in that space. Now, I'm kind of being a little bit um, oblique because there's still a few children in the congregation, but you understand what I'm saying? Probably an incestuous relationship. 
And so King Agrippa's personal life was not exactly, uh, how you would might say, exemplary either, in the same manner that Festus's wasn't. Uh, but he did have a good working knowledge of the Jewish religion and so was a good sounding board. And so uh, Festus consulted with King Agrippa. They, as we see here in chapter 25, verse 14, they discussed this case together. Uh, Felix explained the situation and what he had done. And King Agrippa's interest or his curiosity was piqued and said, well, let's, let's hear this man together. Let me hear him myself there in verse 22. And so a court was convened. Now, it's worth picturing this description because uh, I don't know whether you were able to do that as I read through it. It would make a great scene in a movie. You know, the costume design would just go berserk in this space. They would love this moment because here is the king making his first imperial visit to the new governor. They would have been wearing their finest clothes, their, uh, their beautiful jewellery, their purple robes and not only was the king present and uh, the governor present, it tells us here in the text that uh, all of the high-ranking officers and leading men of the city, the military tribunes, the commanders, the, the people who were significant would have gathered in their Roman best. I was going to say Sunday best, but it probably wasn't a Sunday. But you know what I'm trying to say. They would have gathered with this amazing pomp and ceremony and trumpets and all of that kind of stuff. And then they brought in Paul. And if you can picture Paul, he may have looked something like this. In all likelihood, he was handcuffed. He did uh, motion to the fact later on in his trial, uh, I wish you could be like me except for these chains. So he was chained up. He was almost certainly dressed in the garb of a prisoner. We don't know what he was wearing, but it would not have been the same kind of um, finery that the rest of the gathering uh, had. D tradition actually tells us that Paul was a man of diminutive stature. That's a code word of saying. He wasn't particularly tall. Uh, it, <laughs> it does also say he was bandy-legged. Uh, it tells us uh, that he had a hooked nose and it gets better that he also had beetle brows. Now, I've not actually heard that expression before, but my wife said to me a few times, you've got one of those, um, <laughs> one of these kind of eyebrows. It's, it's, it was cheaper to buy one, and it just goes from one side to the other, right? <laughs> so Paul was like, you know, he's heavy brows, hooked nose, bandy-legged, short, mind, mindful too, seriously of the fact that sometime before, in fact when he'd been in Derby, uh, as part of his missionary journey, Paul had been dragged outside the city and stoned and they'd left him for dead. Now can you imagine, and I don't say this lightly, can you imagine uh, the physical consequences of being stoned and left for dead? You know, his head would have been crushed, his face would have been uh, damaged, his body would have been bruised and broken. And tradition also says, broadly speaking, he was not much to look at. And is it any wonder? Nor was he, according to tradition, a particularly eloquent speaker, which gives me great hope. Um, so here we have quite a contrast, don't we? You know, this pomp and ceremony and, and magnificence of the courts contrasted with this guy who, uh, who obviously had lived a hard life. 
But then when Paul spoke, the truth of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 18 uh, was realised, demonstrated to be true. Jesus said in that passage, on my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what you're going to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father in heaven. In Acts chapter 26, we have an example of Paul resting faithfully on that promise that Jesus has made, uh, giving his longest, uh, our, the longest recorded response that we have, uh, a description of his life and his testimony. It starts with a description of how he grew up there at the beginning of chapter 26. He was a well-educated Pharisee. He describes his fanatical persecution of uh, Christians, travelling even to foreign cities to persecute them. And then he described his own conversion experience. And it's rather interesting, and there's some stuff that we can pull out of this, I think, uh, to give us some encouragement as we think about witnessing ourselves. Two things actually I'm just going to mention quickly, uh, uh, two things that will be instrumental, helpful to us. The first relates to his commission, the commission that he received. From verse 12 in chapter 26 onwards, Paul talks about his commission on his journey going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. He was confronted by a blazing light. This is also reported in Acts chapter 9. And Paul and his companions fell down. And then in verse 16, Paul says, uh, the Lord spoke to him and said, Now get up, stand up on your feet. I'm appointing you as a servant and to be a witness of what you have seen and of what I will show you. It's kind of interesting and it's well worth reflecting on this for a moment. In this moment when God commissioned Paul, he said, I want you to get up and stand up. What's the significance of that? If this was night church, I'd actually ask you to answer the question because we're doing a bit more backwards and forwards. What's the significance of God saying to Paul, stand up? The, the answer, I think, is because you can't go if you're sitting on your butt. You know, if you want to go in response to God's command, you can't do it sitting in a comfortable lounge chair. And there are a couple of occasions through my life where I've sat down with someone who's been scratching their head and saying, oh, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know where God wants me to serve. I, I'm looking, I'm sinking the will of God and I'm just not going anywhere. And I just want to say, well, do something because it's easier for God to steer a ship that's moving than it is the one that's dead in the water. And interestingly enough, on other occasions through the scriptures too, we see when God calls his servants, I think of something like uh, the passage there in Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel fell down uh, before the Lord, an entirely appropriate response of humility. And God said, son of man, stand up on your feet uh, because I will speak to you, I'm going to send you. In fact, the very next thing God says to him is I'm going to send you. You need to be standing to be sent. You need to be ready to move if God calls you. You can't go if you're sitting down. And I think one of the things that certainly encouraged, strengthened, gave Paul the courage that he had in this space was this commission that he received. It was clear. It was unambiguous. He'd been charged by the living God, the creator of the universe, the boss of everything, if you like to use that, to go to the Gentiles, to turn them from darkness to light, to rescue them from the power of Satan. It was a commission 
commission that came from the highest authority and it was a commission that Paul did not fail to discharge. In fact, if you jump to uh, verse 19 in chapter 26, Paul says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. The, the vision was the commission and I was not disobedient to that commission. Here's a really heavy, hard to think about point just to chew away on for a few moments. God has commissioned us, true. He said to every one of us, go, you will be my witnesses. And if we refuse to do that, we're acting in disobedience. Disobedience, sinfulness. Further on in this narrative, we actually catch a glimpse of the second element behind Paul's courage, the conviction that Paul had, conviction that gave him confidence to speak. There's a, pack, a, a not a package, a portion of Paul's life we don't know too much about. And it would be an interesting one. Maybe we could ask him when we get to heaven, if it's still an issue for us. It's the, the three years that took place immediately after his conversion. There's a, a period of about three years we don't know much about at all except for the fact that he told um, the Galatians a little bit. He said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 to 18, when my God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles, that was his commission, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. He went out into a wilderness. He went into the desert, essentially. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. Now, my question is, what was Paul doing in those three years? What was he up to? Three years. It's an interesting answer. He was actually at Bible college for three years. And he wasn't doing uh, what we might call, um, let me see, I've got it written down here somewhere. Um, he wasn't doing a study at a seminary, but a doctorate in the desert. Uh, he, I suspect, we don't know this for sure, but I suspect, and I think the evidence is pretty strong, that Paul actually went out into that space and for three years he searched the scriptures. He went through the Old Testament that he went, uh, went knowing so well and he looked to see, does this revelation that I've received of Jesus Christ, does this commissioning, this Jesus who's appeared to me, is, the, is there congruity between what the scripture teaches and this person? And Paul concluded, absolutely there was. The scriptures suddenly he saw as actually pointing to Jesus. God's revelation through history is fulfilled in Christ. And he concluded that that was the case so convincingly that it drove him forever. It drove his work, it drove his call, it drove his mission, it drove him to the point where he went to prison happily for Jesus because he knew that God had worked right through history and it was coming to its sharp point in Christ. He was convinced and convicted by what the scriptures taught. And so uh, when in conversation with Festus and, and with Agrippa, if you come there to, let's have a look, uh, it's around verse 27. He said to King Agrippa, who was acquainted with the prophets, having just explained Jesus, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. It was, a, it was a straight out and actually a very rude challenge that Paul was putting before King Agrippa. How rude it is for a prisoner to speak to the king. 
And yet Paul knew that the king ought to be able to see what he had seen. That by careful study of the scriptures, you could actually see it talked about the Messiah. It talked about a suffering Messiah. It talked about resurrection from the dead. And here it is, all found in Christ. And King Agrippa, was, uh, he was put on what you might call the horns of a dilemma. Because if King Agrippa said, oh yes, Paul, I can see it. Wow, you can imagine the outcry, can't you? And if King Agrippa said, no, Paul, I don't believe the prophets. My goodness, those Jewish leaders there would have had, they would have had heart palpitations, conniptions, you know, all of that. They would have, King Agrippa would have been in all sorts of strife. And so what did King Agrippa do in this place? Well, he answered in a way, he answered the question with a question. Always a good strategy if you want to get out of trouble. Someone's putting you under the pump. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul rather thought, yes, actually. I've shown you the evidence. What's your problem? So, courage in Paul's ministry here, built on the commission, his understanding of the commission and the conviction that he has that God's word is everything it says it is. What about us? Let's take a few moments to reflect on this uh, and what it means for us. I'm so mindful that the, um, the whole area of personal witness is one in which so many of us carry guilt. We know that Jesus has commissioned us. We know we should have conversations. We know we need to go and share the gospel. It's, and there's guilt, isn't there, when we know that we fail in that area. And so it would be quite, uh, let's say, counterproductive for me to lay another layer of guilt out here this morning because I'd be doing it to you and I'd be doing it to myself. Not helpful. We know that the commission that Jesus has given to us there in Acts chapter, uh, sorry, in uh, Matthew chapter 28 is not just for the religious professionals, it's for everyone. It's not just for those who travel overseas to do it. Let me just say to you as a bit of a throwaway, it's actually sometimes easier to do it away from your family, with those who know you. You know you can put on a different persona in that space. It's still not easy, but uh, sometimes it can be. Uh, we know um, that it's tough. We need to think about the gravity of the commission that's been given to us as we think about this. You know, Paul was absolutely convinced he'd encountered the living Jesus in that moment when he was on that road to Damascus and uh, it transformed him. I emphasised in that space, you know, it was the living God, the master of the universe, the highest authority that gave him the commission in the same way uh, we have been commissioned by God. Think about this. Some of you have had children. You've raised children. Some of you are looking forward to have children. So here's some advice for you guys. Um, when your children are growing up, you want to sort of increase their capacity to be responsible, yes? And so on occasions we would say to our children, we would like you to go to the store and we want you to buy this. Here is the money. Here is what you have to get. Um, and don't come home with the wrong stuff. And so off they would go. And you would rather hope that they would fulfill that commission because they knew it came from, humanly speaking, the highest authority. It would be very unlikely in that space 
if they were halfway to the store and somebody, a friend said, oh, where are you going? Well, I'm going to the store. What are you buying? Well, I've been sent to buy a bottle of milk. Oh, that's nice. How about, we, how about instead of getting some milk, we go and get some soft drink instead? How should the child respond? Well, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Yeah, what's going to happen when they get home? There's going to be all sorts of trouble, isn't there? Ideally, what should happen in that space is that young person says, you know what, mum and dad or whoever have said, this is what I have to get. They have the authority. They're the one who has commissioned me in the same manner. Uh, God has commissioned us. Let's just reflect on what that means for a moment. There is nobody of higher authority, no one who can usurp that commission, no one who can change that commission. It's God who's given it to us. And God says, lo, I will what? Be with you as you fulfill that commission really significant and then there's uh, the conviction the second thing that we talked about the conviction that Paul had this conviction I believe that Paul had came about as a result of his careful study of the scripture the application in that space should be obvious if we don't know the words if we don't know what the word says if we don't spend time drilling down deeply into it we will find ourselves floundering when it comes to the place where we're looking to God for courage and then there is faith and Paul certainly demonstrated and exercised that faith that God would give him the words as he needed them in the moment and then perhaps a little out of left field but I'm just going to throw this out here today anyway uh, they're the tools that we can use what was the tool that Paul used well it was the the trial that he was on that was the context he was in he was asked questions he answered the questions I've been really encouraged uh, to watch um, what our youth group has been doing over these past few months. For those of you who've got young people will know that as part of their teaching through this term, they've been doing some really simple pictures illustrating the gospel. And they've done it for two reasons. One, so that our young people get a grasp of what the gospel actually is. In a nutshell, that there is a holy God who we have been separated from by sin. There's a great gulf between us, a chasm. Uh, I'm not sure what the language they're using at youth group is, but this enormous gap. And we try to build bridges with all sorts of stuff, you know, things like our good works. If I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven. If I'm nice to my grandma or whatever it might be, you know, if I'm well-educated, if I give to the poor and those bridges that we try to build are always insufficient. There's only one way to cross that gap and that's Jesus Christ. That's the illustration that our young people are using. They're doing it for one reason, to help our young people understand the gospel. They're doing it for another really important reason and that is so that our young people can explain the gospel to others because any of them can draw that little picture. Remember two years ago, if you were here, uh, we drew some other pictures the little circles that we did, the world, the king's crown that God uh, created the world that he might rule over it, that we've rejected his rule, we did that. We're actually going to come back and do that again because I think it's worth refreshing in that space. Tools that we can use to build on the faith that we have that God, as he speaks to us, will give us the courage we need in that moment, the commission that we have, the conviction that we have from the words. And... Uh, and pray together that as we uh, in this 
post-COVID world reconfigure or reposition ourselves ready to launch back into the world and the community around us with the love of Christ to our neighbours over the road and behind us in our city, in our world, that we will go with the same courage that Paul had. That's our prayer as uh, an eldership, as leaders of the church, that we might be able to step out in the same manner that Paul did even in this space. Let's pray and uh, anticipate next week as we start winding up towards the end of the book of Acts. Lord, we want to thank you again for the courage we see demonstrated in Paul. Oh, how we long to be able to speak like he did and have that. And, And Lord, we believe that you've actually said we can as we reflect on the gravity of the commission that you've given to us you are the highest authority as we think about the conviction that we might have as we recognize the word that has been given to us as true and alive and active as we experience the dynamic work of your spirit in us as we rest by faith in you jesus and who you say you are lord our prayer this week is that you will perhaps open a door for us to have a conversation to perform an act of kindness or generosity with someone, somebody outside the kingdom that will just have the effect of bringing them that one step closer to Jesus. We pray that you will encourage us, embolden us in that space. Help us to know that you are with us no matter where we go and what we do and that it's your glory that we seek, not ours. And so our words, though they might be faltering, our actions, though they will be inadequate, are not the end of the story. It's actually what you do and the dynamic work of your spirit is what transforms people's lives, not our eloquency or our smooth talk. But we pray that you will use us as your servants to bring about the expansion of your kingdom right here in this city. Lord, as always, we thank you for your word that it's been preserved for us through the ages. Continue to speak by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.